Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Beijing has experienced its heaviest rainfall in 140 years since records began. The downpours caused by Typhoon Doksuri have killed at least 20 people and affected some 600,000 people in the Chinese capital and neighboring Hebei province since Saturday night. The city issued the highest or red alert for floods on Monday and lifted it on Wednesday as the rain subsided. While floodwaters are receding, recovery work proves daunting. Chinese President Xi Jinping has demanded an all-out search and rescue effort in the aftermath of the disaster. The floods came on the heels of extreme heat waves which hit the Chinese capital and neighboring areas earlier this year. Against the heat waves that have wreaked havoc globally, what sparked the unprecedented weather events? Is there anything that can be done about it and are there more to come before things gets better. I'm pleased to be joined from Guangzhou, southern China, by Ji Ye, professor at uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, also professor at the School of Public Policy and Management of Tsinghua University, and from Queensland, Australia, by Professor Brendan Mackey, director of the Griffith Climate Action Beacon at Griffith University. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. First, about the torrential rain in Beijing. Professor Chi, now, Mengtogou District and Fangshan District in western Beijing are among the hardest hit areas. By August the 1st, across the city of 22 million, 11 people are confirmed dead and 27 people missing. How serious has the disaster been? And why is Western Northern Beijing particularly hard hit? Well, uh, to answer those two questions, we see uh, this, time uh, this time around, this is a very, very serious time. And it, it, on the record, and in the last 143 years, there, this is the first time we have seen such a very heavy, heavy uh, rain, and uh, and it's reported almost 1,000 millimeter for uh, this time around. There's a 999.7 millimeter of rain in uh, in Hebei province, and uh, uh, more than 500 millimeters in Beijing. Uh, what so, does that compare to the average? Well, the average, this, this is a, in uh, Beijing, somewhere between 500 millimeter to 600 millimeter per year. So the, the roughly, the, uh, we see the, the heaviest rainfall this time in just four days. It's uh, just almost twice as much as the annual precipitation in the area. So that's how bad it is. And why this area in Fangshan district or in Beijing and Hebei area is hard hit this time. And this, as you just mentioned, this has to do, of course, with the typhoon, the story. And, uh, but it's not only the typhoon, you know, typhoon happens every year in the East Asian monsoon that comes from southeastern part of the, uh, the ocean all the way to north, northwest. And uh, when it comes to Beijing and this area, it hit the mountains, the so-called the Taihang Mountain and the Yanshan Mountain. And then the uh, humid air uh, will go up, then just make very heavy rain. This, this happens, like I said, every year, but never have happened 
like this mm. in record time. Mm. Yeah. Professor Mackey, the heavy rain uh, started Sunday until Wednesday morning, lasted 70 hours. Is Typhoon Doxory the main culprit here, or how much of it is because of uh, Doxory and the strength of it? When you have a major flooding event, and may I say my, my commiserations to all the people who have lost loved ones in the flood and all those people who have lost their homes and businesses, there's you know, a real human dimension to these tragedies we have to keep in mind. Mm. So when you look at the impact of the flooding, that's due to, as Professor he said, this unprecedented intense rainfall which exceeds the capacity of the watershed to safely shed the water and so you get these flash flooding events and areas flood that, that that have not flooded the impact of that on people and settlements and infrastructure is due to the exposure of all of that to the flooding and the vulnerability of of the people and and the businesses so the impact is a combination of the unprecedented intense rainfall and the exposure of the buildings and the people and the infrastructure to that event and and the vulnerability, the capacity of the people to you know, mitigate the impacts of it. So coming back to you, Professor Chi, and of course we share the sorrow for the missing and those who perished in neighbouring Hebei province. And it is reported that in some places, in some locations, water rose by as much as six metres uh, above their ground level, their normal levels. So uh, Professor Chi, what is your take on the kind of uh, preparedness or vulnerabilities of these places? And uh, from your knowledge, are people getting the kind of need and assistance they need in time? I think in general, the, the early warning work has been done quite properly because uh, you, you mentioned that this time is uh, is already raised to the top level of early warning. And but the prediction has been various. The, we have seen prediction of the rainfall from 250 to 500 to more than 800 millimeters from different places in different country. And however, the prediction and forecast is not everything. The early warning is very, very important. We, uh, this time around, certainly, uh, I think the government has learned the lessons from the 2012, the, uh, the so-called uh, uh, July 21 incident in Beijing and also the uh, the July 20th incident in Zhengzhou uh, just uh, a couple of years ago. And the early warning is down the property in my view. However, I mean, the since nobody has experienced a severe flash flood and rainstorm like this before, I think this is uh, it's very unfortunate that the action is uh, much less than what is really needed to prevent the tragedy from happening. And uh, this is also a big reminder that we are facing a climate that's really unprecedented and we have to take a lot more seriously than yeah. we have before facing this greatest threat yeah. to the humanity. Uh, I mean, the climate change. Yeah. Um, Professor Mackey, um, 
things may go even more unpredictable, that the intensity of flash floods or downpours may be stronger in the future. What could possibly be some of the good practices that can be learned, can be used by major metropolises like Beijing, which we cannot upgrade our capacity uh, indefinitely, but what can be done? Any, you know, best practices or suggestions? Yeah, yeah. So what we need to be doing is taking a comprehensive approach to disaster management. And often when agencies and communities think, of, or when agencies think about disaster management, they, they think about responding to an extreme event. But really there are four phases to disaster management, a comprehensive approach. The first is prevention. Mm-hmm. And that gets back to what we talked about, about exposure and vulnerability. You know, do not build new structures on floodplains, right? For example, so through good planning, you can avoid a lot of exposure. Mm-hmm. You can prevent a lot of harm. The second is preparedness, and this gets back to having better f- networks of flood gauge systems and better early warning systems, right. and better logistics about getting people out of harm's way when the warnings come. The third is with the response. You really have to have really well connected up agency responses. You need many, many different agencies and services working together mm. in a highly coordinated way. And and that, that response has to be planned well ahead of time. And also in the recovery, often the response might be adequate, yeah. but communities and businesses and people their lives and businesses are affected often for years afterwards. Mm -hmm. So a lot more effort has to be put into the recovery. So it's that comprehensive approach. It's called the four P's and the two P's and the two R's, prevention, preparedness, response and recovery. Well, hopefully uh, a lesson will be carefully studied and learned from uh, this uh, disaster. But looking into the future, Professor Chi, from the perspective of global warming, as I said, uh, Beijing has had um, extreme heat waves hitting the city particularly early this year and particularly strong this year. And then we're seeing heat waves in Europe, in, in the United States. Are we, again, looking at you know, the different uh, consequences of global warming that is getting worse? Well, we are uh, definitely looking at the uh, the consequences that are getting worse. And, but this year is a, it's a little different because this year it's marked the, the beginning of it's a new round of El Nino and Southern Oscillation. And that means on top of climate change, the, uh, we say that's uh, the gradual incremental change year by year. On top of that, then we have a new an additional layer of uncertainty and severity. And this will, in the past, we call this kind of event or climate extremes. But unfortunately, these extremes are becoming more and more common. And that's a new reality we must face and therefore we must have uh, definitely enhanced preparedness and to prevent this this kind of thing and exposure. And we can't really control the climate uh, very much. What we can do, you know, as uh, Professor Mackey just said, we can do that to, to P's and to R's better and to build a more adaptive city 
and more resilient city and make the, the future loss and damages and less for the future. You just make, make it even more resilient city. Mm. Well, the uh, World Meteorological Organization uh, has said that this July is said to be the hottest month in history. Professor Mackey, uh, what does that mean for the global uh, climate warming fight that we have been trying to step up? And what's the case of Australia as people are predicting the likelihood, chances of El Nino weather remain likely in the coming weeks? Are we going to see a higher intensity of El Nino because of worsening global, global warming? Yes, and that, that, that's right. We are seeing, uh, so global warming, and let's remind ourselves that this is human-influenced climate change from us burning fossil fuels and producing these greenhouse gases, which is making the planet hotter, warmer, and that is resulting in disruption to our climate system. And as Professor she noted, an increase in the frequency and severity of these extreme weather events both heavy rainfall day events, but also these heat waves. I mean, what we've seen in uh, Europe and Mexico, Southern Europe and China have just been extraordinary. You know, China had had temperatures exceeding 50 degrees in Northwest China. The all China heat record was broken on the 16th of July in San Bao. And we, we have a branch of science now of climate science called attribution science which is able to attribute how much more likely a given event was, extreme mm -hmm. event was, because of human influence, climate change. Mm -hmm. So we know that these extreme events uh, that have been occurring in, in South Asia are, are largely driven by climate change. Right. The, the, the extreme heat wave uh, in China, you recently experienced, um, would have been extremely rare uh, without without human influence climate change. In terms of Australia, we had this situation three years ago. We were in the middle of a of a El Nino. We had the biggest, longest drought we've ever experienced, the biggest bush wildfires we've ever experienced, and all heat waves were broken. So it's yeah, it's a very serious situation in terms of more more people die from heat waves than any other extreme weather event. Let's keep that in mind, unfortunately. Many thanks, Professor Chie and Professor Brandon Mackey. When we come back, the upcoming BRICS Summit in South Africa shines a spotlight on the continent's development. What's on the table? Stay tuned. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. The annual BRICS Summit is on the horizon.
From August the 22nd to 24th, South Africa will be hosting the annual event in Johannesburg. This year's summit will focus on the African continent. Heads of 54 African states have been invited, setting the conference apart from previous ones. Prior to the meeting, more than 40 countries queued up to join the BRICS over the past few months. And shifting away from the dollar is a hot topic among many countries. So what lies ahead during this year's BRICS summit? What deliverables are in store for Africa and what does China plan to do to boost development in the Global South? I'm pleased to be joined from Johannesburg, South Africa by Professor David Monnier, Director of the Center for China-Africa Studies. Professor Monnier, thank you very much for joining us. Now, this year's theme is uh, BRICS and Africa, Partnership for Mutually Accelerated Growth, Sustainable Development and Inclusive Multilateralism. Uh, what can people take away from it for the average African person? What can they expect from this meeting? I think put it simply is that the post-1945 world order, which is U.S. Western world dominated, uh, has never prioritized the African continent. Uh, for all these decades, uh, Africa has been in the margins, uh, in the periphery, uh, and therefore there hasn't been any concerted effort by big powers to ensure that Africa is involved. And therefore the rise of BRICS, which comes at the backdrop of other initiatives within Global South, mainly the Bangdan Conference of 1955, the rise of the non-alignment movement, the group of 77 plus China, and now uh, BRICS, I think with the end of Cold War and, um, and, and now, uh, all other global South initiatives has been declining. BRICS is emerging as a much more stronger counterweighting uh, forum, I think, for the global South. And therefore, Africa is central in all of the above. There was this um, wish expressed by France to join the BRICS platform for this year's summit. Eventually, France didn't get an invitation. But what does that say about one of the leading developed countries wanting to be part of the dialogue? And what is the consideration of South Africa not to include France this time? Is it possible for BRICS summit to have members of developed the global north, let's say, to be at the table too in the future? In principle, there's absolutely nothing wrong for uh, members of the developed countries, the global north, to be observers. The G7 countries do indeed invite developing countries to observe some of their summits. However, this speaks much more volume, uh, mainly that the international order as it stands, it's fragmented. The legitimacy of the uh, global north is declining uh, much faster. I think there's a realization by some uh, members of the Global North that there is a need to reach out to the Global South. So I think it is in that context on one hand. The other one is directly self-interest when it comes to France. Um, it's one country that still holds on to some of its former colonies on the African continent. And it is a very complicated relationship 
with these countries on the African continent. I think for President Macron, um, the thinking is that perhaps if reaches out to South Africa and the uh, BRICS countries, somehow uh, he will also be perceived uh, in the global north as countries that are progressive, that are doing something in bringing development and and, and, and thereby uh, giving legitimacy to the global north countries. From an economic point of view, the economic woes that's uh, plaguing the world economy, high inflation, including African currencies uh, this year, uh, having lost ground against the US dollar. So what do you perceive to be the most important discussion to be had that during this year's BRICS summit and the impact the discussion may entail for the tangible you know, livelihood of people in BRICS countries? The BRICS 2023, I think, will go down in history as one of the major turning points, uh, not just for BRICS countries, but for uh, global politics. I think what we are seeing is a fast change taking place in which the emerging powers are setting themselves, but far beyond are setting themselves. I think what we are seeing is that this summit will take place in the uh, backdrop of ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict on one hand, that is bringing geopolitics tensions affecting Africa in itself, it's affecting the uh, food security, for instance, and the whole issue of grain uh, trade uh, using the Black Sea. Uh, it's becoming a major center, and Africa has also been involved in this. And we also see the trade wars that the United States started, particularly targeting China. This is worsening the, the way uh, in which uh, global politics plays. And we also have seen the rise of blocks that are targeted uh, towards specific countries in the South China Sea and a number of other initiatives that do not bring a global peace and security. And therefore, when BRICS uh, deliberate this year, I think the chances are extremely high that they are going to really discuss some of these uh, issues to strengthen the voice of the uh, global South. But more exciting is the countries, number of countries that are keen to join BRICS. I think we have Saudi Arabia, we have Iran, Argentina, Algeria, Egypt, and quite a number of other countries. And more and more countries are coming. In my own predictions, chances are extremely high that the original members of BRICS will indeed discuss the mechanisms and methods of really admitting, because as it stands, BRICS does not have a clear cut of bringing in new members. And therefore, I think we're expecting them to come um, welcomed and given a phased out approach uh, and given clear uh, method that they are going to use that they agree upon as members of BRICS and then admit members uh, gradually. It won't be a big bang approach. Mm. What are attracting these countries to be part of uh, the BRICS platform? There are more and more countries which have expressed uh, explicit interest of being part of the group and enjoying part of the benefits and be part of the action, for instance, Egypt. What is drawing these countries to the BRICS? I think the first major uh, reason for most countries wanting to join, I think it is to do with their lack of confidence, trust, 
in the current uh, international order. I think they have observed uh, the manner in which conflicts are handled, the manner in which trade, and they themselves within their own countries and regions are treated uh, at a global level by big powers. Uh, it's not in line with their own developmental uh, goals. And therefore, BRICS uh, is much more promising having the future lies not just in Asia, but in the developing world. More population, uh, different civilizations, and therefore I think all countries want to see uh, their civilizations, they want to see their people being treated as equal at a global level. Uh, by equal means the democratization of these institutions without having a singular power uh, or a region dominating all aspects of life in international yeah. relations. And therefore, it's a call uh, yearning for freedom um, and development uh, what by these countries. What about the over-dependency of uh, these countries traditionally on the US dollar? The dollar is also created uh, a lot of crisis uh, for developing countries, that there has been the weaponization of the dollar by United States, the kind of actions that United States, in terms of sanctions, the abuse of global public goods, such as SWIFT, in uh, excluding some countries. And all this has brought countries to really think in terms of how they can trade without having the dollar to mediate that trade. And, then, and therefore, I think there has been much talk about BRICS currents. I think uh, that uh, talk, in my own view, is that it's going to also be a gradual approach. Creating a, a, a brief currency is quite complicated, mm -hmm. but one is expecting uh, much more the trade among brief countries in their own local currency to really take a stage that in itself undermines the dollar. And the rise of technology, uh, particularly digital currency, I think that is one of the greatest uh, fear uh, in Washington, uh, that more and more trade, global trade, will take place without the dollar being at the center of every trade we take in the world. Right. We have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Professor David Monnier, Director of the Center for China-Africa Studies, joining me from Johannesburg, South Africa. With that, we come to this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. The mother put the porcelain spoon. The mother drew back and poured the little girl back. But the mother did not hear the old voice. The mother. Experience the heartwarming story of a mother's love that knows no bounds, titled The Mother written by Nobel Prize-winning author Pearl S. Buck. It's a story of love, sacrifice, and the universalism of motherhood that transcends race and borders, told through an account of an unnamed mother living in rural China in the early 20th century. Get the audiobook right now at radio.cgtn.com or any major podcast platform. Simply search for the Books and Beyond podcast and key in The Mother.